High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter by the qualities that are most important to you. Then book free 15-minute consultations with any therapist you're interested in seeing. And because 95% of therapists at Alma accept insurance, you can find care that's affordable too. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com slash therapy30 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash therapy30. You must a just a Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and today we bring you another story from The Seduced, a miniseries related to my new book, Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom, in Howard Hughes's Hollywood. Today, we're going to begin with an excerpt directly from the book. This comes from Chapter 7, which finds Jean Harlow adapting to her post-Hell's Angels superstardom, and Howard Hughes facing the challenge of how to follow up that phenomenal pop cultural spectacle with a sustained career as a Hollywood producer. Jean Harlow left Hughes' company for MGM as soon as she had a chance, and another actress in whom Hughes had also invested much capital, Billy Dove, was not long for the Hughes organization either. Today's episode is about a third actress who blamed her association with Hughes for her career dissatisfaction. By the end of 1932, 
Hughes had lost control of three significant actresses in whose stardom he had once been invested. Howard Hughes has made a neat little role for himself buying up beautiful girls, putting them in expensive pictures, and then selling them retail to a paying studio, gossiped Screenland magazine, citing Jean Harlow, Billy Dove, and Anne Vorschach as examples. A few months earlier, 20-year-old Vorschach, an atypical beauty whose parents had worked in silent film, had made headlines claiming she had been, quote-unquote, sold down the river by Hughes, who had unloaded his contract with Vorschach to Warner Brothers after the actress's performance in Scarface had turned her from an unknown bit player into a budding star. Unlike Harlow, Hughes couldn't even claim to have discovered Vorschach. She had been cast in Scarface after her friend, actress Karen Morley, had invited her to a party at director Howard Hawks' house before shooting began. At the party, Anne had asked Scarface actor George Raft to dance, and he declined. She was a little high, drunk, Hawks remembered, and right in front of him starts to do this sexy, undulating dance, sort of trying to lure him on to dance with her. She was a knockout. She wore a black silk gown, almost cut down to her hips. I'm sure that's all she had on. Eventually, Raft gave in, and according to Hawks, he and Vorschach proceeded to dance a sensational number which stopped the party. Hawks ended up casting Vorschach in Scarface as Cheska, the sister with whom the titular two-bit gangster has a quasi-incestuous bond, and the director even inserted a scene in the movie replicating Vorschach's party dance with Raft. Hughes soon decided that if Hawks was so interested, Vorschach must be a valuable commodity. And in August 1931, Hughes signed her to a long-term contract. He also tried to date her, but Vorschach was too nervous to accept his overtures. Though she had stunned as a glamour girl in Scarface, and when drunkenly cavorting with Raft on the dance floor, this had been a performance from a young woman who thought of herself as a mousy wallflower, and she didn't want her boss to find out about the real her. As a result, when Hughes would call, Vorschach would make her mother answer the phone and tell the millionaire that Anne was off doing something exciting and glamorous, when in reality, Anne would be sitting by the phone, shivering and shaking with excitement, her face cold-creamed, eating a ham sandwich. Hughes never got further with Vorschach. There were rumors the actress and director Hawks had an affair on the set of Scarface, and Hawks did cast her in his next film, The Crowd Roars, which required Warner Brothers to rent her services from Hughes. Warner Brothers paid Hughes $600 for Vorschach, and Vorschach, like Harlow before her, 
got $200 a week. Hughes kept renewing Vorschach's contracts through the middle of 1932, but he didn't give her much to do. He allegedly tried to get his old friend Louis Milestone to cast Vorschach in his adaptation of Somerset Mom's Rain, but Joan Crawford got the part instead. Hughes cast Vorschach in just one more film, the Spencer Tracy vehicle Sky Devils, and then continued to loan her out to Warner Brothers. On the set of one of these WB films, Vorschach met the man who would become her first husband, actor Leslie Fenton. After Vorschach had shot five Warner Brothers films, Hughes finally decided to sell her contract to the studio, which paid Hughes an exorbitant $40,000. After filming her sixth film at Warner Brothers, Three on a Match, opposite Humphrey Bogart, Vorschach decided that she wanted out. Warners had taken their time drafting a new contract, and Vorschach's weekly salary hadn't yet been raised from the bargain basement rate Hughes had set. Plus, after filming Match, Vorschach learned that the toddler who had played her son in the film had been paid the same salary as her. In addition, Fenton, whom Vorschach had impulsively married, was making a movie in Germany. Anne didn't want to be separated, and per the Times, if anyone was going to shirk their professional responsibilities for the good of the marriage, it was going to be the wife. So Anne walked out on her commitment to Warner Brothers and traveled to Europe with her husband. In breaching her contract, Vorschach didn't seem to think she was giving up much. She was annoyed that Hughes had signed her to a seven-year deal and had essentially pimped her out before selling her like chattel. And she wasn't happy with how Warners had used her thus far. I made nine pictures in eight months, Vorschach said, summing up her career thus far. Quantity, not quality. In Vorschach and Fenton's absence, her agent had already tried to negotiate with Warners to double Anne's paltry salary, to no avail. So on July 19, 1932, two weeks after Vorschach had absconded from Hollywood with her husband, the actress, Fenton, and a Hungarian actor named Victor Varconi spoke to the press in New York and announced that Vorschach had been sold down the river by Hughes. Fenton and Varconi had what seemed like rehearsed statements ready to go. Producers look at you for how much money they can squeeze out of you, Fenton declared. A contract's a sentence to hard labor. There's no regard for personality. Stars are being sent to sanatoriums because they can't stand the pace. That's not going to happen to Anne. Varconi piped in with a virtual non sequitur. There is little culture in Hollywood, he sniffed. I hope I shall be able to arrange my affairs so that I will not have to return there. Within a day, Howard Hughes had responded to Vorschach's claims with a statement that could only be described as a masterwork of rhetoric far exceeding in tone and strategy 
Vorschach's clumsy appropriation of the language of the slave trade. Anne Vorschach was not sold down the river, and she was misinformed if she thinks so. The statement began. It went on to argue against each of Vorschach's main points, even correcting some of Vorschach's math about his own share of profits, before damning Vorschach with praise. Of course, some producers might be highly indignant at Miss Vorschach's statement, and if they were in my position, they might denounce her in gratitude, proclaiming loudly, Miss Vorschach would still be working for $75 a week if we had not given her a part in Scarface. But I don't feel that way. Producers are not entirely responsible for the success of a star. I think some credit should be given for Miss Vorschach's ability. The Vorschach situation brought an echo of Hughes's conflicts with Jean Harlow. But if Harlow managed to shrug off Hughes and move on to bigger and better things in a way that made Hughes look expendable to her success, the opposite fate would befall Vorschach. His statement elegantly put her in her place and made Hughes, who could barely string together a sentence in a social situation, look like a font of wit and charm. Who was Anne Vorschach? Where did she come from? And why did she strike out at Hughes this way? And what happened to her after that? Join us, won't you, for the story of Anne Vorschach. Vorschach was born Anna McKim in 1911. Her parents were both actors, although her father was largely absentee, and Anne was mostly raised by her mother, Anna Lehrer. Lehrer, who was a teenager when her daughter was born, transitioned from vaudeville to moderate film stardom after parting ways with her baby daddy and moving with her four-year-old daughter to Los Angeles. The younger Anne was cast in a few small roles as a child, before enrolling in a convent school. She was not yet a teenager when she decided to change her last name to Vorschach, which she asked to be pronounced as Vorschach, although many people in Hollywood and elsewhere would pronounce it more or less phonetically as Dvorak. The name was either discovered on Anne's family tree or was a tribute to the composer with the same name. But either way, it was an unusual move for an aspiring actress to choose a name that was more ethnic-sounding than the one she was born with. During her first flush of fame, newspapers reported that it was a miracle that Anne had already lost her foreign accent— one columnist rather meanly referred to Anne as a girl whose name sounds like a typographical error. Later, Howard Hughes and his publicist Lincoln Korberg would bat around ideas for a new name for Anne, including Anne Howard and Lenore Lee. But Korberg would ultimately recommend that she stick with Vorschach. Considering this girl's type and personality, he wrote in a memo, I think her present name is as good as anything we could give her. It expresses her personality, and it is unusual. Once it has been definitively established in the public mind, it will be remembered, and stick longer than a less exotic moniker. I would recommend retaining it. 
Obviously, his recommendation was followed. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. As Anna Lair's screen career began to wind down, her daughter became increasingly determined to find her own fame. Her mother was discouraging. As she later admitted, she had an arresting face, but I didn't think she was pretty. Lair and her new romantic partner, who was an ad copywriter, encouraged the young lady's other passion, poetry, instead. The precocious teen graduated from high school at the age of 15. She wanted to attend college, but at this point her mother's acting career had dried up and there was no money for tuition, so Anne had to go to work. She wanted to work at a newspaper, but as a teenager with no experience or advanced education, she failed in that pursuit. Reluctantly, her mother agreed to use her limited remaining Hollywood connections to get her daughter's foot in the door at the studios. Anne did a number of screen tests, which went nowhere. Casting directors said I was too young, she later recalled. They also said I was self-conscious and not particularly good-looking. She did not do herself any favors with styling. She would show up at auditions wearing no makeup and baggy, unflattering clothes, her hair plaited in two childish braids. If she didn't necessarily have star quality, she did have determination. And though she didn't really know how to dance, she began going to open tryouts for chorus girls. At one open call at MGM, she was cut in the first round. But instead of going home, she rejoined the line and auditioned again. She kept getting cut, and she kept going to the end of the line to try again. Finally, she asked a producer, Why didn't you pick me? Amused, he agreed to hire her as a substitute in case another dancer got injured. Another dancer did get injured, 
and Anne finally had her in. She would dance in the chorus of the musical The Hollywood Review of 1929, and to promote the film, she was one of several girls placed on top of a billboard for it, high above Wilshire Boulevard. This film led to several more opportunities for Anne at MGM, first as a chorus dancer, and then as an assistant dance instructor. This was not what she wanted, but it was steady work in 1929, which no girl would have turned down. One of Anne's tasks was to show dance moves to Joan Crawford during pre-production for the film Dance Fools Dance. The two young women became friends, and inspired by Joan, Anne finally started making an effort to polish her personal style and look. Crawford and her then-husband, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., attempted to help Anne get real acting work. But she was nothing more than a bit player until she met Karen Morley, who introduced her to Howard Hawks, who cast her in Scarface. One of the hidden hallmarks of Howard Hughes' career as a producer was remakes, official or otherwise. Multiple times, he would return to concepts and even stories and titles that had worked in the past, for him or for his collaborators. A less charitable word for such works would be retreads. He may have continued this pattern because of the one time when it really, really worked. Scarface was producer Howard Hughes' attempt to recapture in the sound era the winning formula of one of the hits that had established him as a force to be reckoned with in Hollywood, the silent gangster film, The Racket. The Racket was a ripped-from-the-headlines crime picture which had been frank enough in its depiction of inner-city corruption to inspire pushback from local censorship boards. And Hughes had used these kerfuffles to promote himself as a bold new rebel who wouldn't allow the nanny state to tell him what to do. Scarface, though ostensibly based on a novel, was essentially a revisiting of the racket, updated to attract audiences who were flocking to talkies that pushed the envelope of what the code office found acceptable. Hawks explained that he saw it as the story of Al Capone with an incest spin borrowed from the Borgias. The film has two key female parts, that of Cheska, the lead gangster's sister, and that of his actual romantic interest, Poppy, which would be played by Morley. Hughes could have arranged to borrow Anne from MGM for the single film, which was the arrangement he had made to get Morley. But instead, Hawks negotiated with MGM's Eddie Mannix to release Vorschach from her contract there, and Hughes signed her to a new contract with his company. It was the middle of 1931, and the two highest-profile performers under contract to Hughes were Jean Harlow, who the public somewhat inaccurately perceived as a total nobody who Hughes had discovered and turned into a massive star, and Billy Dove, a major star of the late silent era, whose career Hughes was attempting to resurrect through furious rebranding. By spring of 1932, both of these actresses would have left Hughes's employ, Billy because her romantic relationship with Hughes had ended, 
and Gene for bigger stardom at the studio Anne had left, MGM. But when Anne Vorschach signed with Hughes to make Scarface, neither of those defections had happened, and Hughes's reputation was that of a boy wonder who had a specific knack for promoting female starlets. Anne was led to believe that, against all odds, she had been chosen for greatness. Scarface would give her what, sadly, proved to be one of the best opportunities of her career. She only has a handful of scenes in the movie, but the relationship between Tony and Cheska is the emotional heart of the film, symbolizing the human cost of a life of crime for the families of the perpetrator. We first see Vorschach when Tony walks in on her, kissing a man. What do you mean, catch me? I wasn't doing nothing. You was kissing him. Sure, what of it? Well, I don't like it. You're missing lots of fun, Tony. Listen, I don't want anybody kissing my sister, understand? You're hurting my arm. I don't want anybody putting their hands on you. What do you think you're doing? Well, I'm your brother. You don't act it. Over the course of the film, Tony tries to forcibly keep his sister out of speakeasy nightclubs and away from his own partner in crime, played by Raft. When Tony comes back from a trip and catches Cheska and Raft's gangster in a hotel room together, Tony shoots his friend, thinking he's protecting his sister. But in fact, he's killed her new husband. Clearly, Anne's performance in Scarface is not exactly subtle. But much like the Brian De Palma Al Pacino remake, Scarface is not a subtle film. In fact, it's operatic. And Anne does show emotional range. When she takes a fatal bullet meant for her brother, she underplays her death scene, allowing Muni to soak up the spotlight in full meltdown. The Hayes office did not have a problem with the overtones of incest in Scarface. Their arguments against the film were solely focused on the fact that it put a criminal at the center of the story without, they felt, sufficiently punishing him for his bad actions. In fact, the character played by Paul Muni is complex, but you could argue that there are aspects of him that are empathetic. Still, He is absolutely punished at the end of the film, and it would be difficult to interpret Scarface as recommending a life of crime. The racket was censored because it showed the police in a bad light. Scarface may have faced the ire of the censors because of its depiction of urban anarchy, but Hughes and those close to him felt that the Hayes office was personally singling him out because of his previous and repeated antagonism of the code. I go into this in more depth in Seduction, but suffice it to say, this was a battle that Hughes ultimately won. Scarface was a major hit, and Anne Vorschach, as its female lead, immediately vaulted to the top of the list of the year's new stars. She wouldn't stay there for long. Hughes would cast her in just one more film, Sky Devils, in which she got to do a dance number, but not much else. Hughes continued to renew his option on her contract, 
without giving Anne anything to do. In the spring of 1932, Warner Brothers subcontracted with Hughes to borrow Anne exclusively until the summer. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. One of the films Anne made during this period, The Strange Love of Molly Louvain, directed by Michael Curtiz, is indicative of the kind of pre-code content in which she shined. Anne gives the best performance in any film I've seen her in as a shop girl who gets knocked up by a noncommittal rich guy and ends up having the baby and going on the lam with a petty crook. When the crook gets into a shootout with police, Molly is wrongly reported to be the real mastermind of his gang, and she and a college boy drip who's in love with her end up hiding out at a boarding house, where Molly meets a reporter played by Lee Tracy, who happens to be trying to track down the supposed gun mole. Ace reporter though he may be, he and Molly instantly hit it off, and he doesn't suspect until way later that she's the girl he's mounted an absurdly manipulative fake news campaign to help capture. The boys call me Babe. I knew that. Babe or Queenie. I'm a reporter. I read between the sheets. I used to read in bed myself. Oh, but looks like you and I are going to get along. The strange love of Molly Louvain is evidence of Anne's natural ability to play the crackling, sexually charged dialogue of pre-code and screwball comedy. Unfortunately, she wouldn't make many more movies like it. It was on this set that Anne met the man who would become her first husband, co-star Leslie Fenton, who played the two-bit crook. They were married on St. Patrick's Day, 1932. Anne immediately began making statements to the press that her priority now would be her marriage, not her career. A lot of actresses said things like this. It was virtually expected of a female star to insist that, despite what power she might seem to wield on screen, in real life she was really just a normal woman who was, like many of the women who constituted her fan base, subservient to her husband. A lot of actresses said this, but not all of them walked the walk the way Anne Vorschach would. When Anne set sail for Europe with her husband, breaching her Warner Brothers contract in the process, she had just filmed what would arguably end up being her best part at the studio, in Three on a Match, in which Anne played one of a triumvirate of female friends. Though one of Anne's co-stars was Betty Davis, it was Vorschach who had the juiciest part, as a young mother who becomes addicted to drugs and tumbles into the gutter. This was the performance that convinced Warners to buy her contract from Hughes. So when Anne immediately went AWOL, it showed a lack of interest in playing such meaty roles. That she also badmouthed the industry, Hughes and Warner Brothers specifically, didn't help. 
which is not to say Anne didn't have legitimate grievances. She had been worked very hard by Warner Brothers for very little financial compensation. She described how the workload was impacting her in very dramatic terms. They're pushing me too hard. I tell you, I'm tired of seeing so much Anne Vorschach around, on the billboards, the magazines. If they keep on, there will be nothing left of me. I'll be dead so far as movies are concerned. And something in me will die too. She was also receiving bad counsel. While Anne and Leslie were away, Leslie's agent, Charles Feldman, attempted to negotiate on Anne's behalf. Feldman seemed to think that the longer Anne stayed away, the more desperate the studio would be to get her back. Feldman told Warners that if they doubled her salary and personally requested that Anne come back, she would do so. While Anne was on the boat, before she even reached Europe, Jack Warner cabled her asking her to come back. But Feldman told Anne to ignore the request. Days later, Anne and Leslie gave their press conference, at which the sold-down-the-river accusation was made. Hughes's rebuttal easily won the first battle in the headline war, and the rest of the entertainment media stood behind who they perceived as the winner, mocking Anne for her entitlement and capriciousness. One columnist spoke to Anne directly, writing, You are not important enough to get away with it, and when you are important enough, you won't want to. Anne would never have a chance to find out if she could become that important, but even if she hadn't done the unforgivable in publicly attacking the studio system, she probably would have been seen as more of a character actress than a leading lady. There were actresses who blurred that line. In the 1940s, two of them, Betty Davis and Ida Lupino, would do so at Warner Brothers. But though Betty would bring her own legal action against Warner Brothers, Anne was the first actress to step into that particular fire. She was not rewarded. After the press conference, Warners put her on suspension, withholding pay for the length of the couple's trip. And it was a long trip. All told, the couple traveled through Europe and into Africa and were gone for more than eight months. By the time they got back in late March 1933, the studios had been forced to respond to two major drags on their previously established way of doing business the Depression, and the increasing enforcement of the Hayes Code. Anne and Leslie had spent their savings while away, so she no longer had the luxury to protest Warner Brothers' treatment of her. She agreed to go back to work under a modified contract, which would pay $325 a week, with periodic raises so that her salary would eventually top out at $2,300 a week. Anne was publicly contrite, swearing... I shall never again act like a child playing hooky from school. But Warner Brothers didn't act like they were happy to have her back in the fold. It took months for the studio to actually cast her in a movie. 
After five months, she was loaned out to Paramount to co-star in a musical with Maurice Chevalier. Finally, she was given a small part in a minor WB production called College Coach. She'd film nine movies for Warners in 1934, but in most of them her roles were supporting and hardly the driver of the story. Right before the Hayes office put new enforcement of the production code into effect, Anne was able to sneak in one more pre-code gem, Heat Lightning, although she would be totally blown off screen by the character actress Aileen McMahon, who gave an incredible performance in a rare lead role. Generally, Anne was cast as the supportive girlfriend or wife, but at least in Housewife, in which she played the spouse of an advertising executive, her contributions to a household were given the spotlight of the movie. During this time, Anne and Leslie were enjoying their own idiosyncratic version of wedded bliss. They had gradually accumulated a lot of land in Van Nuys, California, where they lived in an open-plan house on the middle of a working walnut ranch which they owned. In their spare time, they together pursued the unusual hobby of bacteriology. Anne was well-behaved for her first year back at WB, and she worked steadily without incident. Still, while Jean Harlow had only gone on to bigger and better things at her major studio after leaving Hughes, Anne was finding herself fifth billed on minor films, and her studio was doing nothing to generate material with her in mind. Then Anne did a couple of things that made it look like she was demanding special treatment, which the executives didn't like. First, she maneuvered to change her contract so that she would be given only two weeks of unpaid leave per year, rather than the four weeks stipulated on nearly every other performer's contract. Then, she tried to get out of traveling to San Francisco to do press for a film called G-Men. Then, when the studio cast her in a thankless part as James Cagney's wife in a movie called Ceiling Zero, Anne called in sick on day one and spent the day writing a letter to Jack Warner. I must insist that you place me in productions of dramatic merit in which my artistry, personality, intelligence, and experience may be displayed, she wrote. Failure to do so will be considered a breach of contract on your part. Instead, she was fired from the movie and put on health-related suspension. Anne seems to have been faking sick, which was a mistake. The studio could now use her supposed ill health as an excuse not to give her any work. And there does seem like there was something going on with her. Always thin, Anne had dropped so much weight by this point that the studio thought she looked unattractive on camera. They got a studio doctor to sign the statement, It is my opinion that in her present state of health, she could not pursue her duties as a contract player without greatly endangering her health, and there is a strong possibility that she would not be able to complete a picture should you undertake to have her do so at this time. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. 
That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. If Anne was too sick to work, that would make it a lot easier for Warners to cancel her contract especially if she volunteered to stay home when she was supposed to be on set. When she called in sick for several days on her next film, the studio again took her off the job and put her on unpaid suspension. In need of her salary to keep the bills paid on her ranch, Anne decided to disobey the orders of her personal doctor and the studio doctor and show up anyway. But she was sent home and accused, in private memos, of pretending she was well so that the studio would be forced to pay her. Anne decided to take the matter to court. Anne had found three doctors to examine her and provide statements that she was healthy enough to work, so her lawyer argued that Warners had breached her contract by forcing her on to medical suspension. After she filed suit, Warners had two of their own doctors examine Anne, and both claimed she was, in fact, too ill to work. Still hoping Anne would drop the suit, in January 1936, the studio lifted her suspension. Her lawyer advised her not to go back to work until the legal matter was settled, so she didn't. On Valentine's Day, she appeared in court to testify. She acknowledged that she had been dissatisfied with the roles the studio had offered her and recalled, I told Mr. Warner if I was not worth my salary for him to release me. But she denied that she was ill and claimed that she had been ready to work for four months. The studio brought in images of Anne over the years to demonstrate that she had become severely thinner over time. Despite much testimony from doctors who claimed Anne was healthy, the judge decided in favor of the studio that they had been justified in suspending her on the basis of her health. She was ordered to return to work. Anne planned to appeal and did not return to work. This battle dragged on for over a year, during which time Anne did not work at her home studio for nearly 12 months. Finally, at the end of 1936, Warners agreed to let Anne walk away from her contract. Anne would not officially retire for another 15 years, but the end of her time at Warner Brothers would, in hindsight, turn out to be the end of her chance to ever become a major star. While other actresses, such as Barbara Stanwyck, were able to successfully freelance before and after World War II, Anne would spend the next decade and a half working for a variety of studios, but she never really built any momentum. There would be some interesting movies, 
such as Café Hostess in 1939. But then World War II got underway, and Anne, again afraid that letting her husband go to Europe on his own would be the end of their marriage, walked away from her Hollywood career when the British Leslie enlisted, in order to join him overseas. She worked a bit in British films over the course of the war, but who knows what would have happened if she had stayed in Hollywood, where the parts for actresses who could play strong, independent women only multiplied during the war. It's especially tempting to wonder what could have been, given that the marriage barely outlasted the war. In 1946, Leslie and Anne announced they would divorce. As soon as she was legally free, Anne married a dancer named Igor Dega. When Anne returned to Los Angeles after the war, she was restless, depressed, self-conscious, and nervous that she had let her stardom slip away. She remained at loose ends for months, then made a few films under contract to the minor studio Republic. Her highest profile performance around this time came in the star-studded moral melodrama The Walls of Jericho, which starred Cornell Wilde as a small-town attorney and politician whose life is destroyed slowly by the scheming of a sexy Lady Macbeth, played by Linda Darnell, and the anchor of his alcoholic wife, played by Anne. Anne only has a handful of scenes in the movie, but she makes the most of them, giving a convincing performance as an angry, bitter woman who has always felt inferior to both wealthy, impossibly beautiful ladies like Darnell, and to her husband, who for some reason, every girl and woman in Kansas wants to bone. After Jericho, she had a small but significant part in the George Cukor-directed Lana Turner vehicle, A Life of Her Own, but Anne's film career had begun to tail off. She worked in radio and television, and made a couple of efforts on the New York stage. She divorced Dega and married for a third and final time to Nicholas Wade, an architect, designer, and grifter. Together, Anne and Wade tried to start a television production company, funded by Anne. This appears to have been a total money pit. Anne spent hundreds of thousands of dollars and never actually produced anything. In 1957, Anne filed for divorce from Wade and in her filing described horrible-sounding physical abuse that she said he had inflicted on her throughout their marriage. Meanwhile, she'd contracted tuberculosis and spent much of that year hospitalized. When she emerged, she and Wade got back together, canceled their divorce, and moved to Hawaii. Over the course of this marriage, Anne had lost nearly all of her assets. Six years later, during a period when the couple was again separated, Nicholas Wade died. Anne wrote a poem reflecting on where she had ended up. I had to reach 62 to finally become free. A career and three marriages, two divorces, a life of fire and brimstone. Adventure? Yes, lots of it. In many ways. 
Anne herself died of cancer four years later, in 1979. She had entered the hospital under her given name, Anna McKim, so it took a while for word to get out that Anne Vorschach, of long-ago Hollywood fame, had passed away. Next week, we will catch up with Hughes in the 1940s as he begins to pursue a number of brunette beauties, three of whom will be the subjects of the remaining three episodes of this season. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our editor is Olivia Natt. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. Special thanks to our special guest, Noah Segan, who returned to the podcast to play Howard Hughes. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find show notes for every episode with lists of all of our sources and the music used on each episode. And if you go to youmustrememberthispodcast.com slash seduction, you'll find information about how to pre-order the book that this season is related to, Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes' Hollywood, written by me. We also have a schedule of events that I'll be doing related to the book, which include book signings, film screenings, and more. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. Want to win a signed copy of my new book? You can. I've teamed up with my publisher to give 50 listeners, chosen at random, the chance to win a signed copy of Seduction. This giveaway is open to U.S. residents 18 years of age and older only. Rules and regulations apply. To learn more and enter now, visit our website at youmustrememberthispodcast.com slash seduction. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Yeah.